This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is How to Citizen with Baratunde. In season two, we're talking about the money. Because to be real, it's hard to citizen when we can barely pay the bills. You've been learning a lot about my childhood during this season. And that's because childhood is where I first encountered some of the ideas we've been talking about. Ideas about the economy. I didn't learn about all this stuff for the very first time in some college course. No, it's It's through a neighborhood shop that I remember. It's through a person that I knew. It's through an interaction or an experience. And that's true for most of us about most of the ideas that we ever think about as adults. Childhood's where it started. And that is so true for me with the idea of a co-op. My mother was a hippie. She was a proud mama. She had a 
big afro at times. She rocked her cowboy boots and loved her NPR, and she wore tie-dye every chance she could get. She was a little bit different from the other moms on the block, and she was really into healthy food. I remember going to the co-op with my mother for health food because I guess the grocery store at the end of the block didn't have healthy foods. And the co-op was just different. There was a lot of granola, making it almost literally a crunchy place. And they had alternatives to everything I knew I loved. Like I loved Cheerios and they had Odeos. I loved chocolate glazed donuts and they had carob covered donuts. And I didn't love that because that wasn't a chocolate glazed donut. And what even is a carob? I also blame co-ops for bringing grape nuts into my life. Because that's not even food. That's more like a gravel situation. And grape nuts with skim milk is a crime. The co-op to me was this tie-dye, tote bag, largely white place miles away from home where we went to get special food. But now I'm learning there's a lot more to co-ops. See, as I've grown up, I've learned that co-ops are more than what I remember from my childhood. And when you talk about the class of folks known as the working poor who can never get ahead because of extractive business models, cooperatives become more of an economic answer than the patchouli-soaked lifestyle I was used to as a kid. Today's guest shows that co-ops might not be what you think they are either. Jamila Medley is an East Brooklyn native who at the time we spoke was the executive director of the Philadelphia Area Cooperative Alliance. PACA is a co-op of co-ops, building economic power in the Philly community and breaking all kinds of myths about what co-ops are and who they're for. Co-ops are basically a version of economic democracy. Jamila, thank you so much for joining. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to sit with me and with us. And uh, I want to start with you introducing yourself. My name is Jamila Medley. I'm executive director of the Philadelphia Area Cooperative Alliance, otherwise known as PACA. PACA. I was like, I was so glad you said it because I'm like, is it PACA (laughs) or is it PACA? Tell me something about yourself that might not be in an online bio, something a lot of people don't know. Dang, this is a big one. I can rap the books of the Bible. I mean, you need to tell me a little bit more about this. (laughs) So as I mentioned, I'm from Brooklyn, and I went to St. Paul's Community Baptist Church growing up, where the esteemed Johnny Ray Youngblood was pastor with Minister of Music, Eli Wilson. And we did things in children's choir, like learn how to rap the books of the Bible. And it has never <laughs> left my mind. It's pretty dope. You, I mean, I'm not going to do it. You know what's next. <laughs> you can't. I mean, show, don't tell. What's, uh, give me a little taste. All right. Listen, everybody, as we talk to you about the books of the Bible, the old and the new. There are 66 books if you take a long look, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. Pay attention, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to rock to you about the books that unfold. I'm going to stop there because I don't forgot. 
That is a special, special skill. That is a spectacular answer. I did not see that coming. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so, so tell me more about growing up in Brooklyn. Describe your neighborhood and, and what the community felt like to you as a kid. Sure. So I grew up in East New York, last stop on the number three train, Dulots Avenue. East New York at that time is, and still is known as a struggling um, neighborhood. It was, it was the hood hood. Give me some sense of timing of years that you're talking about in terms of your childhood there. Sure. So I was born in 77. So I'm talking about the 80s, 90s. And East New York had crack, had prostitution, it had murder. It's got a documentary about the worst police district in New York City. I mean, the government literally sent anything that they considered unworthy of a good life to East New York, institutionalizing people, um, throwing, throwing away humans. It was a, a poor and working class neighborhood. My grandparents had moved there in the 1960s, um, one of the first Black families to move into a new high-rise apartment when the neighborhood was still white. From where? From where did they move? They moved from Brownsville. So this was their Jefferson story of moving up from the projects into this newly constructed apartment high-rise and... Uh, Subsequently, white flight ensued, and the narrative of disinvestment, as is very typical in communities like this, came to be. But um, I think one of the unfortunate realities is that beauty and joy aren't always uh, the stories that come out of this kind of neighborhoods. But my family was there for three generations. <laughs> Live, you know, my grandparents, I don't know, we're in that apartment. I grew up in that apartment. My mom grew up in that apartment. My first daughter was born. She had years in that apartment. And uh, the church that I went to had a school. I went to the school there, second to sixth grade. I was nurtured and loved by Black women educators who affirmed my Blackness, my womanness, my girlhood. So that by the time I was ready to go into um, middle school and really leave my neighborhood in that kind of like all black life for the first time, I was well prepared. And uh, coming up again, I went to a Quaker school, um, middle school through high school, Brooklyn Friends School. But I, I was affirmed. So we share uh, a decent amount of biography. Um, I went to a very local community public school through sixth grade and then starting in seventh grade. A friend school. <laughs> ah. yeah, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, in you know those same years. And I went to the Sidwell Friend School from 7th through 12th grade. And I was also nurtured and loved and had a lot of joy. Um, what did your church community look and feel like during this childhood? Because it sounds like the church was a big part of your experience of community. Yeah. Um, I was probably in first, second grade when we started going there. I went to church school, I did karate, I did dance classes, I took piano lessons. We had Sunday school, Bible school, summer camp, everything was there. It was the entire community. And it was a church that also kind of, I think, understood its, its social and, and political relevance in a neighborhood like that and really thinking about ways of creating community pride and self-determination through the congregation that really resonate. Like when I started working at co-ops, I was like, oh, shoot, this was like a whole thing happening when I was a kid around 
what has always historically been true in, I think, the Black American tradition of how Black folks have practiced um, mutual aid and cooperative economics, right? And that the church has often been a central place mm-hmm. where people congregate to, to build wealth, to share their wealth, to create community good. And it begs the question, what's a co-op? And where do you see in your childhood some semblance of cooperatives? So a co-op has two components. One is the association of people who come together. They identify that they have a shared need, economic, social, cultural. And they determine that they want to democratically own an enterprise together. And so they create that business to fulfill the need that they have. And that's the simple version of what a co-op is in the sense that it's the association of people Democracy is in the middle and the enterprise is, is holding it all together. I'm not going to say that my church was democratically organized. <laughs> I don't know that that was true. <laughs> but there was definitely an association of people who were organized um, within their religious community, also having an understanding of their political power. I think the biggest thing that I remember seeing is like the creation of Nehemiah houses, Right? So it's this entire housing development that congregations throughout Brooklyn organized to bring resources from you know, municipal funds with their church community and other investment strategies to create new homes. This was a struggle. This was organizing. This was the success of an association of people coming together to meet their needs. How did what you experienced as a child with this community level of organizing affect your later work and your educational path? So I think there's this continuity of values that I've always been grounded in. Everyone is worthy inherently. We, we all deserve good to happen. I think I understood having to work hard. You needed to serve. You had to help others. You had to find a way to, to give back, to contribute, to make something better. And then in school, when I was in middle and high school, I think... There was a lot of that kind of activity just in terms of like taking care of our own neighborhood. And like, you know, there was a really seedy park right behind where my high school was. And I'm going to tell you, in the 1990s, Brooklyn Friends was the ratchet independent friend school. I'm going to leave it at that. But (laughs) Ratchet independent friend school. I've never heard those words. Ratchet and bougie. Ratchet and bougie. Yes. It was the Megan the Stallion of friend schools. <laughs> but we had to go to that park, right? But there were people who um, used drugs there, people who um, were engaging in solicited sexual encounters in that park. And we found their refuse <laughs> and we cleaned it up as a part of our Earth Day experience, right? It's just like, this is our community. Yeah. This is our responsibility. Um, so I think those threads certainly carried you know, into my work of really just seeing the power of collaboration and people coming together and people caring about each other and just like ultimately just really believing fundamentally that everybody has light, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That we should be seeking that in one another. And when we do, it makes it easier to work together. That's all? Just that's total life summation? That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the Quakers would be proud. What brought you to Philadelphia? Well, my first job here was in a cancer research organization based in Philly. And after that, 
I went to grad school. And upon completing grad school, I realized I can't keep not working. This isn't going to be a good story for too long (laughs) for my husband if I don't use this degree somehow. And so I found a membership coordinator role actually at Mariposa Food Co-op. And I got hired to be the membership coordinator there. And so that was around in 2012. And that was my first exposure to co-ops formally. So I have an image of co-ops from my childhood of going up to the co-op in Tacoma Park, Maryland, food co-op. Had a certain smell to it. You know, I describe it as earthy. It made me think of that scene from Broad City. Hey, I'm sorry, but are you breastfeeding? The power of co-op produce has made me fertile into my 50s and beyond. So amazing. So so what was it like for you working at, at the Mariposa Food Co-op? And is it anything like my experience? Yes, <laughs> very earthy. Yes. It, it, I mean, it was... It was my first adult experience really being around radicalized white people. What made them radical? They are. <laughs> I've worked with a bunch of anarchists and socialists and people who, you know, had very far left-leaning politics, had very unconventional, you know, ways of, of living their lives that were in my perspective at that time, I was like, oh my gosh, these are like the freest people I've ever encountered. How how did that (laughs) freedom express itself? What does that look like? You know, it showed up. I also came from, I think my, the church that I grew up in, I think in many ways in that era was about respectability, Mm -hmm. right? So it was like, the best thing that you could do is find a corporate job, right? And where, for me as a woman, put some stockings on, don't wear red and like, you know, do your thing. Don't show as much as you can how black you are. Mm. Just make your money, get your success. Being in this food co-op world was the antithesis of everything I had learned was true to have a good life, right? That you had to button up, that you had to conform, that you had to invisibilize yourself to some degree. So when I got to the food co-op, it, it was, you know, the first community where I, I personally met trans folks and had trans co-workers and I learned about pronouns and I learned about just like a lot of things. You know, people just wore t-shirts and jeans and ripped up clothes and had piercings and tattoos and all kinds of colored hair. And for me, it was just like, it was great, but it was also work. (laughs) And I was not familiar with seeing those expressions of one's humanity being okay in the work environment. Um, So that was a real shift for me, I think, in being able to understand that, oh, there there are other ways and people have found them. What did that discovery feel like for you? In many ways, it was somewhat liberating for me because I had the opportunity to experiment. So there was a lot of opportunity for creativity and really just like making our way, creating new things to make this grocery store a success. And so I really loved that aspect of it. I think one of the challenges of the space, though, that I experienced was I wasn't as free as some of those people were because I was still a black woman. <laughs> and most of my coworkers were white folks who I think were just able to show up 
as fully as they wanted to, but I think there were a lot of experiences at that time for Black women that we could not show up as fully as ourselves without appearing threatening, without appearing too upset. If we were too loud, too ratchet, too angry, too emotional, it, it all just kind of like came back to, to kind of haunt you. So I also learned <laughs> in that space that radicalized white people are also very racist sometimes without even knowing it. And that there's this duality and just like this work, right? I thought that maybe I had found like my anti-racist home and like my place of belonging, but I also realized there was still a lot of work to do in that space. And it was also a space where my radicalization was starting to show up in terms of who I wanted to be and how I wanted to engage in Blackness as a result of that, that workplace experience. Yeah. What was the experience, you know, what was the behavior or the words of the radicalized white coworkers that put you in a place where you felt like you had to manage how you showed up? Oh, now I'm just putting these people's business all out here in these streets. But I think we understand that this is a time where we talk about these things. But I think one of the struggles in that community, prior to my coming there, there had been other Black women that that worked there and that were working there when I worked there. But I think when there were conflicts between those women and other white folks, sometimes there was a way in which Black women were pushed out from the organization. I think often rooted in conflict, right? And that you just showed up a little bit too loud and self-expressing, dear Black lady, for the comfortability of these white folks who now see that part of you and maybe don't feel as safe as they used to. They don't want to ever see that side of you again, right? So, so there's this, this tension. Meanwhile, like, white folks was yelling and could cry and emote and do all the things that they needed to do to express themselves, but there wasn't an, an acceptance, I think, for, for Black women to be able to show up in the same vein. And I saw that happen to other people, And so I became very aware about how I needed to present in order for that not to happen to me. Mariposa Food Co-op is historically, you know, one of the food co-ops that has gotten it right in so many instances, right? So the institution, I think, in many ways is at the forefront of trying to navigate some of the harms that structural racism can perpetuate in any business. I think the opportunity is that there's more accountability in those places to address that stuff, (laughs) right? And to expect better and to expect more from how our white allies in in those spaces are going to show up. After the break, Jamila goes all in on the world of co-ops. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So you're the executive director of PACA. How did you first come to have a role uh, at this cooperative of cooperatives? So PACA was actually being founded around the same time that when I started working at Mariposa. The first group of people I started talking about, you know, answering this question of, you know, there's a lot of mature cooperatives in the Philadelphia region. There's food co-ops, housing co-ops, credit unions, energy co-ops, worker co-ops. We got a lot of co-ops here, but they don't really do a lot together. Mm. What would happen if there was a way to organize the co-op sector to help grow the cooperative economy? So what would happen if cooperatives cooperated? Yes. So 
that became a launching pad for, you know, a number of activities that invited cooperators to come together to, to muse and to think about what this, this new organization could be. So I decided to go to one of those convenings and they were looking for volunteers. And I thought that I should volunteer because I didn't know anything about co-ops and my job was to recruit people to join the co-op. <laughs> So Take it till you make it, Jamila. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, let me go over here and see what I can learn. <laughs> um, and I've learned so much. I learned about an entire economy, an entire what some people would identify as a lifestyle. I learned about a network of activity and effort that I had no idea was happening. And... I stayed involved with PACA as a volunteer on their steering committee. And then as the organization formalized and became a nonprofit organization, I got elected to serve on PACA's board. And then by 2017, when our first executive director was ready to um, step down, I was invited to be his replacement. And I said yes. And you lived happily ever after. And that was it. What is the Philadelphia Area Cooperative Alliance? So PACA is a nonprofit and a co-op of co-ops, and we aim to improve the cooperative economy in our region by providing education and training, um, providing direct technical assistance to groups of people forming co-ops, and to uplift opportunities to promote co-ops through advocacy and political engagement. And, and when, I, when any of us thinks about what a business is. We are taught that businesses seek to maximize profits, that businesses are designed to maximize shareholder value, even in the, in the current incarnation, that we are a capitalist society. So what is a co-op business? How is it operating differently from uh, an off-the-shelf capitalist business? Okay. Can I make a caveat? Please. Before I answer that question. Yeah. Co-ops can be co-opted by capitalism. Ooh, the plot thickens. Okay. So cooperatives are an economic tool, right? People can have a lot of different motives for why they want to use it. So I think, you know, from the the vantage point that I have and the motivations that PACA and, and others in our networks have for, for cooperative businesses is that we believe that, you know, we should prioritize people and planet over profit. We believe that people have a right to self-determination, including in how wealth is accumulated and distributed within their communities. We believe that people deserve and have the right to own assets in their own communities, right? And I think this broader sense that in, in cooperatively owned businesses, a distinguishing factor of it from traditional businesses is democracy, mm. right? And there are a lot of different ways in which businesses can practice democracy, but the difference in, in co-ops is that if you're an owner, you have one vote. Everybody has one vote as an owner, in a co-op. So when it's time to make these important decisions for how this co-op business is going to move forward, are we going to expand? Are we going to uh, close? 
Are we going to hire more people? Whatever the decision points are that the owners need to come together, each owner has one vote. There isn't a 51% owner who gets to wield the power because they have that extra ownership stake. And this is true even as co-op owners might have different equity stakes, right? Mm -hmm. So people can invest different amounts of money into their co-op, but the, the vote stays the same. It's one member, one vote. Yeah. What do you think the benefits are to people for participating in a cooperative business model? I think you can think about it from the individual level and from the community level. So as an individual, if you're a member owner or an owner of a co-op, there's a financial benefit that you can get. Um, You're an owner. So if the company is doing well, the business is doing well, you get to eat. You get a, a dividend. You get a patronage rebate. You get some money back on your return. It's also true that it's not doing so great, you absorb the risk along with your fellow co-owners. I think co-ops often offer community. They offer a place where you can find people who have the same need that you do and work together to try to fulfill that. Co-ops bring potentially wealth into communities. They're locally owned. So they're not some distant You know, there's not a distant owner out there somewhere trying to figure out when to cut out and sell the business, right? When they can make enough money. So the dollars tend to circulate in the community for a longer period of time. Co-ops tend to provide better working environments for um, employees um, because in many of, in worker co-ops, for example, people are actually controlling and owning their own labor. (laughs) So they can, you know, collectively decide what hours they're going to work, how much they're going to pay each other or themselves. And, you know, even during a time like this where we have this financial crisis, cooperatives have a chance of of surviving because of the democratic participation of their owners and their ability to say that we're going to decide to ride this out together. It occurs to me hearing you talk about the benefits of co-ops. We've heard a different story from the traditional business model. The reason CEOs get paid so much is because they're so smart. They're exceptional operators and exceptional managers, and they've earned that money. And it sounds like you're saying you're putting your faith elsewhere, you know, in terms of the management or the operation or the ownership of a business and the piece of our economy. Your model is trusting a larger group of people with the fate of this enterprise. Is that, is that a fair characterization? That could be true. It's it's not gonna. It's certainly not gonna be one person. The co-ops come in all different kinds of ownership structures and sizes, right? So anywhere from the thousands of people who own the grocery store together to the small worker-owned daycare center. So the principles, though, are are such that they can work throughout a variety of structures and um, different numbers of people. But it doesn't have to depend on a singular person to make or break it. After the break, what does it mean to make a co-op of other co-ops? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, 
Oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It seems like for your organization to exist, you got to have a lot of co-ops in Philly. Is there something in the water in Philly that tends toward co-ops? What's the nature of the city and the existence of so many co-ops that your organization can exist? Yeah, well, I'll say... We're also a nonprofit, so we are funded <laughs> through philanthropic dollars primarily. Yeah. Um, and some say that Ben Franklin was the first person to organize a cooperative in the United States. What was that? What are you talking about, Willis? 
It was called the Philadelphia Contribution Ship, and it was a mutual insurance company to protect businesses and homeowners against fire, loss from fire. And this was in 1752. So in 1752, Ben Franklin set up a co-op fire insurance company? That's the story. It still exists. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It still exists. I did not learn that in history class. I guarantee it. (laughs) But I think, you know, for Black folks in Philadelphia, cooperative economic and mutual aid practices have been essential to survival. So we can think back to periods when Black folks were enslaved and, you know, there were free Blacks in Philadelphia and there were people who were running away from slavery who came to Philadelphia and created a rich and robust community of Black folks here. But they survived in many ways through cooperative economic practices, right? So we think about in 1787, the leaders who founded the AME Church also founded like the second Black-owned mutual aid society in Philadelphia. Well, it's the second in the country. But they were organizing for survival because They were locked out of the traditionally established white environments to be able to get things like education, to get things like insurance. If you were a widow, right, the Mutual Aid Society was taking care of widows and orphans. The Mutual Aid Society was paying tuition for um, students. So there's this rich tradition of these kinds of practices in the city of Philadelphia, and I think in this environment where there are so many different ethnic groups and And also a city with a high rate of poverty. Um, We see communities turning back to these practices over and over again as a way to survive. I think we've certainly seen for for Black Americans a long tradition of cooperative economic practice. You know, when we look at things that Ella Baker (laughs) was doing, Fannie Lou Hamer, when we look at a lot of what was happening in the civil rights movement around, a lot of that effort around civil rights was also connected to economic power. And leaders during that time were also practicing cooperative economics and trying to really think about how that connects back into the political power that also needed to be gained. And so when we have times like we have now where things are just on edge and nobody is coming to save us, people organize to save themselves. That's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a rise in co-op creation and and strengthening of ecosystems in Philadelphia, but other places around the country too. So with this long history of co-ops and cooperative economics more broadly in the Black community, Why is the pop cultural image of a co-op a white lady with an NPR bag buying some granola? How did that happen? I think there's a mythology for sure that co-ops like are things that white people do and nobody else does them. And, you know, I've already started to explain that's not true. I think it it got to that in some ways. Jessica Gordon-Nemhart, who is a researcher, cooperator, extraordinaire, wrote this book called A Collective Courage, which tells the history of African-American cooperative practices. And along with these stories of of all of the starts, right, and, and the ways in which Black communities thrived, we also know that some of those stories were impacted by white terror. Right. And that there were just so many times when 
black folks would get too successful and white folks decided you can't have this anymore. And there are ways in which that has happened, you know, at the neighborhood level, when we think about People's Grocery, I think it was in Tennessee or Kentucky, which was a co-op owned by black folks. And the, the, the men who were the leaders in that co-op community were lynched by a group of, of white men who didn't like that these black folks had gotten this much power and were competing. This was in the late 19th century. I think we've seen how the Black Panther Party certainly was practicing cooperative economics, right? And were infiltrated by the government, right? To, to disrupt, you know, the things that they were doing to see Black power emerge. So there were all of these ways, I think, in which white supremacy has also threatened Black communities and other communities of color through structural racism, through the faults even of capitalism. It's hard to try to operate collectively owned businesses in, in capitalism because the structures themselves aren't set up to see these kinds of enterprises succeed. So there's a lot of fits and starts, I think. And I think we're just like all of us, whoever we are, whatever communities we come from, we're Contending with a society that tells us that the individual is more important than the collective, that says that going for mine is more important than making sure that we all get to benefit. And so we're all struggling to kind of really counter um, that narrative in, in our variety of, of communities that we live yeah. in and work and rest in. I'm thinking about um, a set of statistics which remind us that just having a job is not enough. And, you know, the roughly half of people in the United States who would not be able to afford a four or $500 emergency don't have access to that cash. The number of multiple jobs people have, but don't carry benefits. The working poor, broadly speaking. Do you think that collective entrepreneurship, as you put it, do you think that cooperatives are in part an answer to the challenge and existence of a category of people known as the working poor in the United States? Absolutely. I think when people are empowered <laughs> to make choices for themselves and for one another, they'll make better choices than somebody who's really just thinking about the bottom line for themselves. And I think this is what we are seeing in the worker co-op sector we see a lot of who you're categorizing as the working poor turn um, to this business model as a way to accumulate wealth, right? To, to say that I'm, I'm going to work and create a business along with these other people and we're going to do better. Like worker co-op wages tend to be higher than traditional businesses. Employees tend to have greater job satisfaction in that sector. Those businesses thrive and are able to kind of take the terms of economic difficulty better because of that democratic nature and, and shared decision-making model. So the opportunities for wealth creation and, and dignity, right, that comes with ownership. And there are aspects of that that can be reinvested in community, I think are, are really compelling components of why this model could, could do so much more with scalability. Yeah. Given what we've been talking about, this cooperative business model 
and a different way of interacting with the economy, but also under the auspices of a show called How to Citizen. Like we're interested in people showing up in our democracy. What to you is the connection between a cooperatively run business or entity and the health of our democracy? I think this is where it gets really juicy and where I think it comes back to that sense of lifestyle for some folks. I think there's an opportunity to learn and practice democracy and co-ops that we don't get in many other spaces. So for most of us in the United States, we think of democracy and we think of voting at the ballot box. And maybe that happens once a year, once every few years, et cetera. And that's our participation in democracy. Or we think about it as political democracy and how we engage with our elected leaders. But there's also direct democracy that we get to experience in our neighborhoods and through our own civic engagement and practices as we're thinking about how to participate as a citizen, as a neighbor, as a resident at home. And I think it gets deepened with the co-op experience because people are learning how to listen, right? People are learning how to collaborate. They're learning how to make decisions together without power over one another, but power with one another or conceding power to others when that's appropriate as well. I think that these are practices that help build up the democracy muscle, right? When we find opportunities to plug into decision-making, when we find opportunities to plug into organizing, these are practices of democracy. Whether we're, we're organizing, you know, for political power, economic power, to, to get basic needs met, this is the activity of democracy. <laughs> and cooperatives provide opportunities to gain skills <laughs> in doing some of that work, whether you're an employee, you're a member owner who shows up to your membership <laughs> meetings, you've got power in that place. And, and democracy is the pathway for practicing and utilizing that power in co-ops. That was extraordinary. I mean, and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> Woo! Co-ops is where we can practice democracy, and we are in desperate need of more practice. Jamila, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you for listening to me and letting me go on and on. Uh, it was my pleasure. When we started making this show, I knew one of the reasons was to expand the idea of what it meant to citizen as a verb, well beyond voting, that we could express our power, flex that power in all kinds of parts of our lives. And Jamila talking about co-ops, ooh, that just brings it home. This idea of democracy in our economic relationships and the governing structure of our businesses and who they actually serve, I don't think she could have dropped a mic any harder than that. Plus, there was a bonus Bible rap. Who knew? Who knew she had that in her? And who knew the world of co-ops didn't have to be so white? Next week, I'm speaking with someone who believes so much in investing in her local community. She advocates for just giving people money. No strings attached. You know we call this show How To Citizen, so here's some of the how-to parts from our producer, Allie. 
How do you cooperate? Just like Jamila's experience growing up, cooperatives don't always have to be formal organizations. What are some informal ways you have participated in collective stewardship? Perhaps a community garden, local park cleanup, or maybe in church? Think about the ways you cooperate with your community, local and global. Next up, we've got some homework for you. Per Jamila's suggestion, start with reading the book Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice by Jessica Gordon Nemhard. Collective Courage chronicles Black cooperative business ownership and its place in the civil rights movement, a history that's often forgotten when discussing co-ops. Purchase it from our online bookstore and support local bookshops in the process. Visit bookshop.org backslash shop backslash how to citizen. And last but not least, check out the co-ops in your neck of the woods. You'd be surprised how many cooperatives are operating right around you. Look into either buying from a local farm or grocery co-op, joining a local credit union, which is a financial co-op, or even consider getting your power from an electric co-op. The best way to find them is to just do a quick online search with the name of your city or state and the word cooperative. You can find a directory of co-ops around the country at usworker.coop backslash directory. If you take any of these actions, please brag about yourself online using the hashtag HowToCitizen. And send us general feedback or ideas for the show to comments at HowToCitizen.com. Speaking of that domain name, we have one and we're using it. Visit HowToCitizen.com to sign up for our newsletter or learn about upcoming events or even more stuff than that. And if you like the show, spread the word. Tell somebody. If you don't, definitely just keep it to yourself. Appreciate you. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Dustlight Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, Elizabeth Stewart, and Misha Youssef. Our producers are Stephanie Cohn and Ali Kilt. Kelly Prime is our editor. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. And Sam Paulson is our apprentice. Original music by Andrew Epen. This episode was produced and sound designed by Ali Kiltz. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.